we never really adhered to a philosophy of let's aim for sustainability. You know, that that for us was not the goal because we really didn't want to sustain the existing environment. We wanted to help improve that existing environment. And, you know, that's obviously these days now coined in the term, you know, being regenerative, going beyond sustainability to actually not just do less harm, not just do no harm, but to us to start making a positive impact. And we just don't want to be filling people with dread about climate change. We actually want to say, well, let's actually do something about it. You know, let's let's actually design products that can have a positive impact. Welcome to Hero Inside, the ingredient branding podcast with Tomas Vucurovic. In each episode, Tomas will draw from his vast experience as the go-to global ingredient branding expert and will discuss this subject with visionaries and pioneers in the field. How do you go from the zero position as a supplier of a new ingredient to the hero position in demand around the world? Let's find out. Find out. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Hero Inside Ingredient Branding Podcast. My name is Tomas Vucurovic and I am your host. After talking in our first episode with Giulio Bonazzi, a pioneer of the circular economy and the mastermind behind the Econil brand, I'm very much looking forward to my new guest today. It is Mr. Noel Hall, and he's the executive chairman of Bust Fiber Technologies from Victoria, British Columbia. BFT is a regenerative material systems company addressing the preferred materials gap in the global fabric production, and their zero ingredient brand has embarked on becoming the first regenerative ingredient brand for next generation natural performance fibers. In November of last year, we presented at Brain the evolution of our generational model for ingredient branding, and we added a new dimension to it. This new dimension incorporates the regenerative aspect into the existing generations. These third generation ingredient brands aim at not only helping to make their customers' products better, or support them in achieving their sustainability goals, but they also strive to go beyond the product lifecycle itself and help regenerating the planet. Join me in my conversation with Noel Hall for his insightful perspectives on how we can overcome the preferred materials gap and make the next generation of materials accessible and affordable. I would like to welcome Noel Hall to my podcast Hello, Noel. Great to have you on the show. Great, Thomas. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. To go into the topic, um, let me refer to recent NGO conferences and their publications, such as Textile Exchange or Canopy, that are increasingly discussing the need for so-called next-gen materials. Large consulting companies, including McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group, are joining the discourse and providing valuable insights and recommendations. So before we dive deeper into today's topic, I understand, Noel, that you have extensive experience in the pharmaceutical industry and also in marketing agencies, having worked with the famous Martin Zarel. So what motivated you to venture into the fabric market and establish your own company? Bust Fiber Tech? Thomas, it's a great question. I, I often think about that myself. Um, I, I would say I'm a huge proponent of the power of naivety. 
um, sometimes about putting experienced people into a new industry allows you to perhaps think a little bit differently and, and not be um, stri stricken by the dogma that may exist in that industry. And you can ask questions and maybe you get a response, well, we, we thought about that 30 years ago, so we're not going to try it again. I think if you're if you're naive coming into an industry with experience, you can perhaps challenge that dogma. But from my own background, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of similarities between what's happening in the fabric sector and perhaps my own experience. And perhaps the obvious one is the degree of regulation that's coming into the sector. Um, and that's certainly relevant for my experience being in the healthcare industry, which is a heavily regulated industry. And you certainly can't make claims about, you know, this, this medicine makes you feel good. Um, just in the same way you can't make a statement going forward that this fabric is positive for the planet. So I think that regulated aspect of my career is relevant. As you said, working for Martin Sorrell, um, I got a huge respect for the power of brand building. And it's why, you know, Thomas, you and I have a relationship that we established a year and a half ago. I'm, I'm very passionate about the power of brand building. But also, I'm very passionate about having a strong social purpose for any organization. And I think certainly in the pharmaceutical companies that I've been part of, and certainly in the companies that I've created on the healthcare side, we've always had a strong social purpose. And I see exactly the same thing with Bass Fiber Tech. It's the reason why I think I've got such a great team here, because we're very passionate about what we're doing. Amazing. Thank you very much. So let's continue our discussion with your perspective on the current state of next generation materials. What's your take on that? And why do you think are materials so important? Well, there's no doubt that, you know, I call it a mega trend in the world of fabrics. And, you know, you referenced in your introduction there, some of the some of the consulting companies that are involved in moving into this space. Um, you know, it's consistently being known as gen, next gen materials or the preferred materials gap. Um, and as you referenced, you know, BCG, Textile Exchange and Qantas you know, recently, you know, published a report that estimated that by 2030, you know, the gap for these preferred materials, these next gen materials, is going to be over 130 million tons. That's just in the global textile market alone. And it's certainly a well known fact that positive change for the textile sector starts at the material level. You know, after all, the majority of the garments that we wear, they all come from, you know, the raw materials that go in to make them. And, and it's the raw materials themselves that historically have had the largest negative impact. Well, we can take that negative impact and we can turn it into a very positive impact by changing the whole philosophy of the kinds of materials that need to be integrated into, you know, you know garments of the future. Right, and that's true not only for textile or garment industry, right? That's across the board for all industries that... Uh the largest impact on the environment is coming from the raw materials. Yeah, 100%. And, that, that, and I think that's you know, very true in, in the fabric sector, and it's true in many other sectors as well. And I think this is going to see, I think, a changing relationship between, if you like, the end brands and retailers and their whole sourcing strategy and really working in partnership with material innovators you know, like ourselves that are very much part of helping this industry transition to, you know, I would say, a much healthier future. Thank you. So what are the most relevant factors contributing to this enormous material gap of over 130 million tons in the coming years? Well, I think that there's, there's a number. Um, you know, we could talk about the regulatory environment that is changing dramatically for the global fashion industry. We're seeing an unprecedented introduction of legislation covering 
almost every facet of fabric production from the raw materials, how they're sourced, the marketing claims that are being made, the end of life care for garments. So almost every facet of the fabric industry or the textile industry is going to be impacted you know, by legislation. We're seeing the EU really clamp down now on carbon positive claims. Um, you know, you'll no longer be able to just claim that something is, is carbon neutral based on carbon offsetting. Um, you're seeing the consumer intention gap changing. It used to be that consumers would say they were very sustainable, but when it came to purchasing decisions, perhaps they weren't following that through. Well, that's changing. We're now seeing you know, in a recent Bain study, you know, over a third of consumers now are actually backing up their purchasing decisions, you know, based on their attitudes towards sustainability. So I think that is also impacting, I think, this gap. And then the third thing, and it's something that, you know, I, I talk about with my board and my investors, is that people underestimate, you know, sometimes the amount of capital required to build next generation facilities. And you know, some of these plants can cost, you know, over half a billion dollars just in capital investments alone. And they can have a lot of scale up risk associated with technology that maybe has to be invented. So I think thinking about the efficiency of generating, if you like, the, um, or, or making these next gen materials efficient from a capital point of view, you know, is also really important as well. So those are just some of the gaps, I think, Thomas, that are driving, you know, the, the, this next gen materials gap. Wonderful. Uh, but I would still like to go a little bit deeper, maybe in each of these uh, four factors so that our audience can fully understand their implications and also think about what it means for them, for their own business, for their own ingredient. So let's go back to the first topic of legislation, as it will have significant impact on many material suppliers. I often say to my uh, clients that uh, at the moment it's only embarrassing when you make false claims or when you greenwash, right? But soon uh, there will be legislations that uh, will make you responsible. And maybe as a next step uh, of that, uh, you will get fined or sued for making such claims. Yeah, I mean, or your product won't be allowed to be marketed, you know, that way. So. I yeah, I mean, I, I think coming in from the healthcare sector, where I know, you know, if you're marketing a medicine, you know, if you make any false claims or claims that aren't backed up by scientific data, you know, the regulators are coming down on you very quickly and you know, potentially have to remove that product from the market. And I think we're going to see the same thing happening in the fabric sector, in the textile sector. The products will be removed from the market. You know, there'll be heavy fines. Um, and then obviously, probably the biggest thing that that is going to impact a brand is the trust that exists between you know themselves and the end user as well and that trust can be broken down as well by by seeing a company having to you know um, publicly admit that it was making a, a false claim on that particular product so i think the whole environment is changing and and i think it's why companies like ours you know building that scientific evidence to support fact-based claims is so important because you know, coming into this new era that we're entering into, you need to have, you know, evidence-based, I call it, we call it evidence-based marketing claims. You need to be able to back up every single statement you're making about why this fabric is positive for the planet. Prove to me your soil health claims. Prove to me your carbon claims that you're making. Prove to me that you say that, you know, 
you are working closely with farmers and you're paying them more than a living wage. That needs to be proven. And I can see brands out there that are publicly stating you know what the spot price is for a raw material and then they actually publicly state how much above that spot price they're actually paying you know the end growers and i love that sense of transparency that's coming into the industry and at the end the ingredient brand is that seal of trust that delivers that part of the of the proof to the brands and retailers and that makes the big difference also then to using unbranded uh, raw materials um, in that category. Let's uh, move on to the second point you mentioned. Could you please elaborate a little bit more on the challenge of scaling next generation materials? Currently, we all know there is a lot of hype around capsule collections made from next gen materials, but why is it so difficult to scale? I think sometimes people underestimate, you know, the challenge, you know, of of the task in front of them. And I think particularly, you know, if you're if you've got to invent technology that hasn't been invented yet or is just at lab scale, going from lab scale up to full production can take, you know, an awfully long time. Um, and so I, I think, you know, the way that we've approached it at Bass Fiber is to iterate from known technology. We use it in a very unique way but it's known technology. That was perhaps one of the first points. The second thing that we did was really look at a brownfield manufacturing strategy um, to look at where we had an experienced workforce that was already accustomed to highly automated processes. And we identified a number of facilities and we ended up choosing one in North Carolina that in our view was a state-of-the-art facility. It was in a great location, highly motivated workforce, Uh, with with equipment that we thought could work for next gen materials in our case you know working with bass fibers and that was the hypothesis that we that we wanted to challenge we were able to demonstrate that we could put those new materials through older platforms and actually with a few modifications work you know extremely well so you know we'll be in the summer launching that facility in north carolina will be at 10,000 metric tons of capacity going up to 19,000 tons. And that's, I think, an important benchmark because anything over 10,000 tons says that you're at industrial scale. And then we're looking to grow that facility to over 50,000 tons. Um, but again, using known technology with, I think, very compelling production economics. Because I think the point that you make, Thomas, about you know, what are your aspirations? Do you, do you aspire to being in capsule collections or do you aspire to really change, you know, how this industry moves forward and to make these next-gen materials accessible so that they're no longer part of capsule collections, but that they become part of mainstream collections and that also that the consumers aren't expected to pay, you know, significant premiums for these next-gen materials. You know, they shouldn't have to do that. They should be able to participate in that movement beyond sustainability with materials that are accessible. And you can only get there if you have an efficient manufacturing platform with realistic capital investment requirements. And so that's something that when we started the company, we were really focused on is let's be the most efficient company we can be from a capital efficiency point of view so that we can deliver on our promise, which is to make next-gen materials accessible. Wow. Uh, and we can see that in the food industry, uh, where also with Whole Foods and some other large retailers, uh, they made uh, bio food more accessible and the price premiums are at a level uh, where uh, 
everybody can afford um, or almost everybody can afford uh, to go shopping for more healthy food. And I think that's what we also want to achieve um, in the textile industry or in the fabric industry. Uh, another thing you mentioned was uh, that uh, consumer trends are essential for every ingredient brand strategy. And you were referring to changes in consumer behavior that you see related to this material gap and how you would like to address them with the zero ingredient brand. I believe personal care is one of those segments where we see a major shift um, in consumer behavior. How does that uh, influence your business? Well, we identified um, the you know a period care market to be specific, Thomas, as one of the markets that we really wanted to focus on with our next gen materials and with our zero ingredient brand. And you know, it's actually I think a very interesting market. And what we see in the period care market is is actually a shift in a movement towards durable period care products. That's I think certainly a trend that we see, and we've got a number of companies that we're working with in that space. And it's been interesting for me that we chose to work with some really innovative, I would say, startup consumer brands uh, in the period care space that were all introducing, if you like, next-gen period care products using Ciro as their baseline you know, material going forward because they recognized what they saw as a very important consumer trend in the period care market where people you know, were wanting to work with materials that were a lot more natural, um, a lot better for the planet. And we had to work with them to, on a material sciences side to make sure that the product was very fit for purpose. And so that was one of our key, that was one of our key areas of research the last few years. So, you know, it's really exciting to see brands like Mawali launch in Denmark, you know, Trace launch in the US, um, Harper Hygienics launch in, in Poland and in other European markets. And these are all breakout consumer brands in the period care franchise that are, if you like, making these products accessible uh, to consumers. So it's something that we're really, we're really excited about and we're, we're really happy to be working with these, uh, with these young consumer product brands and actually helping them realize their dreams as entrepreneurs in, in bringing, you know, the, uh, if you like, next-gen next gen period care products to the market. Yeah, and then obviously the, the global players like SAT and uh, Kimberly Clark they are recognizing this trend and they're making acquisitions to participate in these new segments. And then you have built up the credibility working already with these first movers, which again, I think is an important success factor of ingredient branding. So you have already launched first projects in that direction and they are also commercially available, aren't they? Yep, they're, they're, they're available. They um couple of them have just launched the last couple of months um a couple of them launched uh, you know late last year and we've got more and more brands you know actually now talking to us and interestingly thomas these are all startup entrepreneurial um consumer brands that are launching into this space that are now working with us and it's, it's been a real pleasure to actually help them you know actually make their product uh, we we integrate and support them throughout the whole supply chain and we also, in the case in a couple of weeks' time, we've got a, a really interesting consumer brand coming from Canada that wants to learn what what the Mawali team, you know, was doing in Denmark. So they're actually flying in and meeting with the Mawali team, and we're helping them to uh, to make that introduction so that they can go and launch that in Canada, which which is our, if you like, where we started the company. So 
it's really exciting to see um, you know that trend, and it's exciting for us as a material innovator to be very much part of helping these companies realize their dreams and get their product to market. So with these first commercial projects on the horizon, you decided to embark on the ingredient branding pathway and and created and introduced zero as your power ingredient brand. I think it's also remarkable that you have successfully trademarked your brand promise, positive impact with every fiber. And this was around the same time when we at Brained presented the extension of our generational model, where we added the important aspect of regeneration to the existing generations of first performance-based and then later sustainability-oriented ingredient brands. So how did that third-generation ingredient branding impacted your brand build-up? Well, it's a, it's a great, great question. And I think when, when we started the company, I think one of the things that became evident to us was this need to move beyond sustainability. Um, you know, the company was started in um, British Columbia, Canada, you know, where we see the impacts of, of climate change. We see the impacts of loss of biodiversity um, in our daily lives. Um, we're all very active people. And so we, we very much see that. So we never really adhered to a philosophy of let's aim for sustainability. You know, that, that for us was not the goal um, because we really didn't want to sustain the existing environment. We wanted to help improve that existing environment. And, you know, that's obviously these days now coined in the term, you know, being regenerative and going beyond sustainability to actually not just do less harm, not just do no harm, but to us to start making a positive impact. And as you said, that led us to, to trademark a positive impact with every fiber, you know, brand promise. And that was something that was, you know, really, really, I think, important to us. But also philosophically, I think when it comes to how to change behaviors, um, Simon Zadig um, in Nature Finance, you know, put it really nicely, and I'm going to quote him directly, but he said, nature positive brings positive emotions and opportunities, whilst climate change fills us with dread and anxiety. And as he said, it's not to say that actions for nature are any easier or less worrying, but part of the appeal is that it's more about how to regenerate nature rather than being or being told things that we must stop. And so we very much feel that that positive message that we could actually make a contribution both as a company with our manufacturing partners and with our consumers and our brand partners, where we can actually be part of a movement to start repairing you know, our planet, repairing our ecosystems, rebuilding communities. That for us is a deeply positive message and it's a very powerful message. And it's something that I think we hold very dearly you know, at, at BFT, which is that we want to bring positive change um, to, this, to this movement. And we just don't want to be filling people with dread about climate change. We actually want to say, well, let's actually do something about it. You know, let's let's actually design products that can have a positive impact um, in, in in many different facets. So it's something that we, we hold, I think, deeply in the company that we want to be part of that positive change movement. And we know it's not just us. You know, we know we have to work with farmers, growers. We have to work with our manufacturing partners. And we also have to work with other co-innovators and other companies that are in the next-gen material space because collaboration and co-innovation is 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 the future and we know that our impact will be much greater if we choose to collaborate and co-innovate and have a much bigger impact with with what we're trying to achieve as a company 
I love that. And uh, as we know from many cases in the past, negative campaigning doesn't create brand engagement and loyalty, and it, it just doesn't work. So it's surprising to see that some brands still attempt it. And uh, instead of providing clear reasons and evoke emotions to their audience to love them, they just go out and rather criticize their competitors or their um, competitive materials. That brings us to the fourth factor that you mentioned at the beginning as a driver of the preferred materials gap. Perhaps you could explain to our audience what a preferred material is in, in your definition and how you have captured this much broader definition in the zero ingredient brand. Yeah, you, you'll hear a lot in the you know next generation of materials. You'll hear various different phrases used. You'll hear next gen next gen materials used a lot. We actually prefer, I think, the concept of preferred materials. It was a phrase that was really coined by Textile Exchange, um, and we particularly adhere to their most recent updated definition of what a preferred material is, in which they refer to it within their Climate Plus framework. And for us, that's really important because five years ago, you know, it was all about carbon, carbon, carbon. And as somebody coined the phrase carbon myopia, that's all people thought about was that a sustainable material was one that was just focused around, you know, uh, being, being carbon neutral. And of course, as we know, a lot of those claims were made based on carbon offsetting, which is itself, I think, been somewhat discredited recently. So I really like, and we really like the the definition that is coming out now about what Climate Plus means, because it's really going beyond climate as the sole focus and bringing in key areas of impacts related to soil and soil health. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. We talk a lot about that in the company. We talk about water. We talk about biodiversity. But critically, we also talk about the broader concept of community and what it takes to have a positive impact on a community. Um, and that when it comes to raw material sourcing, you know, there has to be a shift in attitudes and behaviors from big brands and retailers that the growers, um, the farmers that we work with, you know, are also part of the solution and that they need to be brought in and very much part of that solution as well. And so being able, it's not just fair pay, uh, but it's actually bringing, bringing our growers in to be, um, to be you know, uh, appropriately compensated for the work they're doing in developing a regenerative agricultural program. So if I would summarize it a little bit, it is about going beyond the sheer product life cycle. So we, you go beyond, you start earlier and, and uh, you look at the impact uh, that uh, your action as a company has on a wider scale. Uh, to me, it starts right at the very beginning, Thomas. It, it, it starts at, you know, how the crops, which crops you choose, in our case, which crops we choose to work with, what benefits those crops have within their immediate farm environment, whether it's improving the soil in that environment. But it can also mean that depending on the crop rotation that's used, you know, we're focused on the fiber from that crop. But if we choose the right um, farm rotation plan, then you can also have food crops that are grown after our fiber crop and the yield of that food crop goes up as a result of smart agricultural farming 
where if you choose the right plants, they can help remediate the soil. They can help to tap deeper roots that actually benefit the crops that are subsequently grown. And you can reduce the synthetic inputs, you know, going into that farm as well. You can have a much better impact on, you know, that farm and helping that farm to reduce its synthetic inputs across the board. So I think that's, you know, that's part of how we work as a company is really thinking about everything from what we grow, how, how we process it, and then how we work with ultimately the fabric designers and garment producers to make sure that the garment itself can be recycled and repurposed at the end of life as well. Great. Given that input, it is also pretty clear that the discussion about replacing synthetics and recycled materials with natural performance fibers or next-gen materials is a misleading one, also due to the sheer size of that market segment, right? It's about 70% of all fibers are uh, synthetic or fossil fuel based. So there is actually more a need for coexistence to meet the demands of the industry, isn't it? So it is more of a both and not so much an either or. Should that not influence the tonality and, and the way we talk about those different material streams? Well, I think if you, if you look at the, um, you know, what Textile Exchange said about you know, the, you know, they basically said there are two pillars of, of what they see as next-gen or preferred materials. They see certainly recycled materials becoming, you know, very, you know, very dominant in the next five to 10 years. And, and that's true because, you know, as much as we'd like to remove synthetic materials from our supply chains, you know, we haven't really invented, an, a, 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 I would say, a material that can actually achieve the performance of a synthetic across the board. And so recycling of synthetic materials is going to become, you know, extremely important. But as they said, you know, the other half of that equation is virgin regenerative materials. And I think the point that you make, Thomas, is a very important one. You know, these two material segments don't compete with each other. They complement each other. And so, you know, we're working with quite a number of spinners and, and, and other uh, fabric manufacturers where we're integrating if you like, recycled synthetic material with our own virgin material under the Ciro brand. And we see that co-innovation, you know, being very important because we're pragmatic. You know, we'd love to see the removal of fossil-based materials from supply chains, but, you know, that's not realistic in the next 10 to 20 years. But what is realistic is to see a significant increase in the, in the effectiveness of, of textile recycling and as I said, combining that with our own, you know, zero, zero material is also going to be something that's going to be very important and certainly a, a trend of the future. Well, Noel, we had many amazing conversations over the past uh, 12 months, and I think this one fits uh, seamlessly. I think this is super exciting for our audience and opens not only new perspectives on uh, preferred materials, but Hopefully, it also creates interest and opportunities for collaboration. So uh, we have also your contact details uh, in the show notes. And whoever is interested in co-innovating with you can reach out and uh, discuss how they can become part of the movement uh, you are trying to establish. I believe your 
viewpoints and activities are also groundbreaking for the evolution of ingredient branding. And uh, we wish you and the Bus Fiber Tech team every success in establishing Zero as the first regenerative ingredient brand. So we're coming slowly to the end of our podcast, and I'm always trying to establish a little ritual uh, with my guests. Um, firstly, um, I would like to know if you have any specific question or challenge that you have encountered in your ingredient brand process and that you would like to discuss. Do you have any any specific thing you would like to mention here? Well, I, I, I think um, I think it, to me, it's uh, perhaps it's a chicken and an egg uh, question, you know, Thomas, but it, it is a new ingredient brand, you know, just establishing ourselves. You know, certainly um, it can be challenging uh, when you're talking to some of the larger brands and, and retailers out there who, who, who may say, well, why should we help you you know, uh, get your ingredient brand on the map. What's in it for us? And so, I, I think sometimes when you when you're starting out um, and building an ingredient brand like Ciro, um, you know, that can be a challenge. Um, and I think we've thought about that uh, as a company about who we want to partner with and perhaps what are the early brands that we want to associate with to, to where we share very similar values. Uh, but I'd say that's a that's to me that's a challenge for for any. Um, startup uh, ingredient brand is really thinking about how how do you get yourself on the map when you're just getting going. Um, so I'm sure you've encompassed that in many ways. With brain, you must see lots of uh, lots of companies like ours coming to you. But certainly, you know that can be a challenge, Thomas. And I I think we we think about it every day. Yeah, I think you made a good statement at the beginning of of our podcast, talking about your passion and the vision that you have uh, to establish a more regenerative future for the fabric industry. And I believe that at the beginning of an ingredient brand journey, it is very important to work with partners and discuss with partners who share that passion and who share that vision and who believes in the power of the story that you can give to them and in which they can participate. And that is often easier with the smaller companies, with startup companies. I think you gave an example for the period care market where, uh, or the personal care market. So it's not PNG uh, who is going to be the first client because maybe also the decision-making processes and the administration uh, is quite big. So I believe uh, the best chance to get the ingredient brand ball rolling is to work with smaller, highly dedicated and committed brands who share the same value and um, who believe in your, uh, in your story and who then use their story to get themselves uploaded with that energy that you are providing. And then only in step two or three, the larger brands uh, will kick in. And I think uh, also Giulio Bonazzi in the last episode uh, talked a little bit about that, that it is quite a long journey until maybe the big A brands are, are coming up and integrate you as an ingredient brand. But there's also another trend that we see happening because of that high pressure on getting new materials is that the big brands themselves are actually investing in startups. So if we look at the textile industry, we have IKEA, we have H&M, we have Inditex and others who are actually investing 
into such technologies. And then obviously, as soon as they are commercially available, they have their offtake agreements and they have an embedded need uh, or desire to promote those ingredient brands also to get then those um, businesses going. Uh, the second question um, I have is, um, we had now two amazing visionary business leaders uh, in our podcast. Which ingredient brand would you like to hear from next? Who do you think we should invite or who would you recommend as a, as a guest? Well, I, I'll, I'll tell you a story, Thomas, and I'll, I'll, I promise I will answer the question. But I, when I was seven, I grew up in London and all I cared about was getting a bike. And that first bike was a British brand called Raleigh. Um, and then by the time I was 15, because I, I lived in a forest and I was always modifying bikes to go out into the forest and do jumps, I really started to get into mountain biking. And I remember when I was 15, the decision that I made then was to buy, I didn't really, I can't even recall what the frame was, but I can tell you that I wanted a Shimano XT and an XDR group set. And so unbeknownst to me, I was already influenced by ingredient brand marketing because I really cared about the, the group set and I didn't care about the frame anymore. Roll forward to the pandemic, I buy an electric bike, I buy a recent Muller brand, and I waited until Bosch actually had you know, the, uh, the, the right uh, uh, UX on the platform and the particular Bosch motor driver that I wanted. So I would, I would be very intrigued to get the Bosch team, particularly on the e-bike side, to come in and talk about the lessons that they learned on the automotive industry where they're a parts manufacturer. And I certainly don't go buy a car based on its Bosch componentry, but I do buy an e-bike based on, you know, which Bosch uh, motor drive and graphic system I'm using. So I would be very intrigued to get the Bosch team, particularly on the e-bike side, into this podcast and talk about what they learned in the automotive industry and why they haven't made those mistakes uh, in the uh, in the bike industry, or the e-bike industry to be exact. Great. That's a very good proposal. Uh, and it reminds me that uh, a few years ago, I think in 2019 or 2020, we also wrote a white paper on the influence of the propulsion systems on the purchasing of, of e-bikes. So we are in this topic. There's a lot of ingredient branding and also co-branding in, in the bike segment. And we will definitely pick up uh, that idea. And hopefully we will get somebody from Bosch or somebody else from the bike industry um, into the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Noel, for this very honest and also inspiring discussion about the preferred materials gap and much more and the role that the zero ingredient brand wants to play in it in order to minimize that gap. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thomas. This was the second episode of the Hero Inside Ingredient Branding Podcast with Noel Hall, the executive chairman of Bust Fiber Tech, a regenerative material systems company addressing the preferred materials gap in the global fabric production. It was impressive to learn more about this gap and which solutions can help to reduce it. Accessibility and affordability of such materials, as well as the coexistence with recycled material streams, will be necessary to move step-by-step step towards a better and regenerative use of our resources. To share your insights and questions for this episode, head over to our brand LinkedIn page and join the conversation. The link will be posted in the show notes. Subscribe to the Hero Inside podcast 
to be sure not to miss our upcoming episode. You can also find contact details for Noel Hall and Bus Fibertech in case you want to reach out for collaboration or co-innovation. Until then, keep exploring, learning and being a hero in your journey towards a better future. This has been an episode of Hero Inside, the Ingredient Branding Podcast with Tomas Vucurovic. Each episode features stories and wisdom from game-changing creators and the shapers of the world's most exciting and influential ingredient brands. To learn more about ingredient branding and Tomas's work, visit brained.co. That's B-R-A-I-N-D dot C-O. Until next time. <laughs>